Thank you, Deacon Arrow. Welcome to our online service. Now, the best way to follow this sermon is really to have your Bibles open, for we are learning from God's Word. And if you find it helpful, you can go to our website and download the bulletin, and there you will find an outline for the sermon. Have you been watching the Olympics? Now, I have watched a few events with our Singaporean athletes in action. Now, one of the most memorable events I watched was the table tennis semi-finals match between Singapore's Yu Mengyi and China's Chen Meng. Well, it was a rather one-sided game though. The world number one Chinese player was overwhelmingly better than our Singapore's Yu Mengyi. However, Yu Mengyi never she, uh, she never gave up. Sadly, after losing three sets and trailing 1-4 in the fourth set, she sustained a thigh injury. Even after on-court treatment, she still couldn't move her feet. So essentially, she was a sitting duck. Nobody would blame her if she gave up then and saved her energy for the bronze medal match later that day. But nonetheless, she soldiered on and even won a few points despite not moving her feet. Not surprisingly, she lost the match eventually. But her gutsy fighting spirit won her many fans and support for she persevered and finished the match. Now, I wonder why she would carry on in that state and despite her long record of injuries. Why would she endure such pain and training? In a post-match interview, she revealed that it was her family and the Singapore Table Tennis Association who have supported her despite her injuries. They motivated her to press on to fulfill her dreams. She then said that she wanted to fight on because that could help to encourage others and make a positive impact. That was her motivation to endure and press on despite the odds. Now, I sometimes wonder what keeps all these athletes going. They train for such a long time and their lives revolves around that sport. As we know, many such as Naomi Osaka and uh, Simone Biles, they struggled with mental wellness. There's no doubt that many athletes are under intense scrutiny and high expectations. Many of them have to deal with their own disappointments and not to mention the harsh comments from netizens. Now, the first readers of 1 Peter faced perhaps even greater and longer suffering. Now, these sufferings were inflicted simply because they were Christians. Now, there may not be a systemic, uh, systemic persecution at the writing of this letter. However, we can infer from the earlier passages that there are sporadic and regular unjust suffering inflicted by the authorities, by masters, and even at home. Hence the need for Peter to write this letter to encourage them. See, Peter reminded the, the readers in chapter 1 that they were born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. As a result, they have an imperishable inheritance and they will be kept by God to receive it in the end. 
Then in chapter 2, they were told to live like sojourners and exiles in this world by abstaining from the passions of the sinful nature. For this is the right behavior of those who are chosen and saved as God's people. By keeping their conduct honorable before the non-believers, they will be able to glorify God. Hence, they are urged to follow Jesus' example to submit and not retaliate to unjust authorities, masters, and husbands. It is in hope that their good behavior may win the people over to Christ and affirm that God is truly just and right on the last day. Then as we come to our passage today in chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, the repeated root word here is the word righteous. You see, in chapter 3, verse 12, God's eyes are on the righteous. In chapter 3, verse 14, the readers are suffering for righteousness' sake. And in verse 18, we are told that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, this means that being righteous or doing what is right before God is the main thing that Peter is addressing here. It is almost synonymous with doing good. Peter wants to encourage the Christian to do what is right despite all the sufferings that come with it. So the big question we want to answer today is, why should Christians endure suffering for doing what is right? Why should Christians endure suffering for doing what is right? And we will find the answers to this question from our passage today. See, the focus from verse 9 onwards has changed slightly from suffering under authorities to suffering under those who are doing evil or persecuting Christians in general. When Christians experience evil and reviling from others, how should they respond? Well, the right thing to do is not to retaliate. They are not to repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. On the contrary, they are to bless their tormentors. Now, the readers were already told not to retaliate and be submissive in the earlier passages. But Peter is telling them now to be even more proactive. They are to bless the very ones who give them grief. Now, that's a very mind-blowing and counter-culture kind of attitude and response. Yet, it is the right thing to do before God. But why should Christians endure suffering for doing what is right? The first reason is because they are called to live this way and will be blessed as a result. Verse 9 tells us that Christians are called to a non-retaliatory life. Christians are not to repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with good. And such a life will obtain a blessing. And what is this blessing? It is spelled out for us in verses 10 to 12. These three verses are actually quoted from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. Now, the historical context of the psalm is about suffering of the oppressed and the confidence that God will vindicate them. 
the righteous will have life and see good days despite the suffering. And the eyes of the Lord are always on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. The Lord will be pleased with them and will answer their prayers. And on the other hand, those who do evil will be punished instead. Now the psalm is now applied to the Christians. The blessings in the psalm refers to blessings the afflicted then will receive in their lifetime. However, it is more likely to be the end-time blessings for the Christians now. See, in this letter, Peter has described most of the rewards or the blessings, such as inheritance, to be received in the future rather than in the present world. Nonetheless, in the present, the Lord will still have his eyes on the righteous and his ears are still open to their pleas and cries. I, I took up a part-time job at Burger King when I was 14 years old. That was my first job. And my parents were a little bit concerned. They were not sure if I knew how to make my way to and from my workplace. They wanted to make sure that I did not get into bad company or get bullied by others. So what did they do? Well, they secretly followed me to work a few times without my knowledge. They would watch me from afar, you know, spy on me and to ensure that I was safe and did not get involved with bad company. Now, if this is what earthly parents do to protect their children, what more of our Heavenly Father? He has already secured our salvation and inheritance in the sending of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. Will He not watch over His children? Now, that doesn't mean that His children will come to no harm, for even the righteous Stephen died for his faith in Acts 7. Yet God is ever, ever with His people. He recognizes their faithfulness and He will strengthen them in their suffering. And He will guard them till they receive the full inheritance on the last day. But meanwhile, those who have this hope of the blessings will keep themselves away from evil and do good instead. Now, this is not salvation by works because our salvation is already secured in Christ. Rather, it is to say that all who are in Christ will live this way till the end when they receive their final inheritance. This is what exiles and sojourners in this world are supposed to behave. The righteous are saved for obedience to Christ. As Thomas Strainer, a theologian, says, the priority of God's grace can never be used to deny the need to take action. The priority of God's grace can never be used to deny the need to take action. So why should Christians endure suffering for doing what is right? Well, firstly, it is because Christians are called to live this way and will be blessed as a result. But secondly, verses 13 to 17 tells us that it is better to suffer for doing what is right. 
How is it better? Now, there are three sub-points in this section. It is better to suffer for doing what is right because firstly, Christians will not be harmed but blessed instead. Secondly, Christians will have opportunities to witness. And lastly, slanderers will be put to shame. Now, verse 13 tells us, that Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's a rhetorical question, expecting no one at the answer, as the answer. This verse can be read in general. No one will harm those who are eager to do good. It is similar to how chapter 3 verse 14 says that governors are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There will be exceptions, but it holds true in general. That's one way of reading it. However, it can also be understood in connection with the previous section to mean that no one can ultimately harm the Christians who are eager to do good. If God has promised to vindicate the righteous and judge the evil in the end, what harm can ultimately befall the Christians? Surely no one can inflict permanent harm on those who are saved in Christ. In that sense, it will not be who will, but rather who can harm those who do what is right. Indeed, even if they really suffer for doing what is right in this world, they will still be blessed on the last day, as we have seen earlier. Hence, it is better to suffer for doing right because they will not be harmed, but be blessed ultimately. And with this confidence, verses 14 to 15 says that they need not fear or be troubled by those who do evil towards them. Christians are instead to regard the Lord as holy in their hearts. Now what does regard Christ the Lord as holy mean? Now to understand that, we must go to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 to 13, where it was quoted from. Allow me to read that for you. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of these people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that these people cause conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now, from the historical context of Isaiah 7 and 8, these verses were God's word for King Ahaz and Judah. They are not to trust and fear the plots by the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria against them. For God will use the hands of the Assyrians to vanquish them. Ahaz and Judah are to trust and fear God instead. So applied here in 1 Peter, the readers are likewise not to fear or be distressed by those who might harm them. Now, the Lord refer referring to Yahweh in Isaiah 8 is now equated with Christ. They are to fear Christ the Lord rather than human beings. This is what regard Christ the Lord has holy mean. See, when I was uh, studying in school, there were one or two of those big guys, you know, and the big guys usually, they tend to be bullies. Not all, but some of them. 
they go around disturbing or they go around terrorizing people, right? However, they are often restrained when the teacher is you know, right in front of them. They will even be obedient when the discipline master or the principal is in the vicinity. Why? Because there was a greater person to be feared. Similarly, what verse 15 tells us is that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who controls all things, is on your side. No one can harm you ultimately. He is in control despite all the sufferings. So fear Jesus, the Lord, rather than men. See, when a Christian fears the Lord and is not fearful of suffering for doing what is right, verse 15 tells us that there will be opportunities to witness for Jesus. The strange and counterculture response Christians have may prompt people to ask for a reason for the hope they have in them. Now, the hope here refers to the future reward and inheritance that Christians will surely receive in the end. It is the living hope they have from the time they believe in Jesus. It is this hope that enables Christians to endure suffering for they are not overly concerned about what they will lose in this world. Their willingness to suffer for Christ and not fear men gives them an opportunity to testify to why they place their trust in God rather than their present circumstances. And that is why it is better to suffer for doing what is right. However, the attitude in which Christians make their defense or give their answer is also equally important. Now, Peter tells his readers in verse 15 that they are to testify with gentleness and respect. See, Christians are not to verbally bash their listeners. Neither should we be saying you know, all these things with, with a smart tone, you know, slighting others as if we have got it all sorted out and they have not. See, many years back, my mom once went for an evangelistic home party of sorts. She met a, a fairly young man at the time. And this young man started sharing his testimony with my mom. And before long, he started criticizing her false beliefs and arguments. He's technically not wrong. His doctrine is sound, actually. However, he used such an aggressive tone that my mom was totally put off and she still remembers that incident up till today. Now, it's often said that you can win the argument, but lose the person. See, even the gentle way you give an answer is part of your good behavior that may draw others to Christ. At the same time, Christians must have a good conscience as they give a defense or answer. Now, this good conscience is probably the result of not feeling guilty because of bad living. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians are to live a perfect life, for it is impossible to do so in this world. However, it has to be a consistent life that seeks to do good and do right. And this life is marked by constant confession and repentance to live the life that we are saved to live. Verse 16 then tells us, 
that the result of such consistent living of doing what is right and good will then put the slanderers to shame. The accusations and abusers will have no grounds whether in their lives or when they stand before the Lord in judgment. Now that ties in with what was said in chapter 2 verse 12. The good conduct of Christians will glorify God and will put slanderers to shame. However, their witness will come to nothing if they suffer only because they did evil. The slanderers will no longer be slanderers, but true speakers, and God will not be glorified. Hence, it is better to suffer for doing what is right. And that's because they will not be harmed, but be blessed instead. They will have opportunities to witness for Christ and will put slanderers to shame. And we come back to our big question today. Why should Christians endure suffering for doing what is right? Firstly, it is because Christians are called to live this way and will be blessed as a result. Secondly, it is better to suffer for doing what is right. But lastly, we have the best examples of suffering for doing what is right. For the results of their endurance of suffering give us encouragement to endure as well. See, verse 18 introduces the first example who is none other than Christ himself. See, Jesus suffered, which is another way of saying that he died. He died once for sins. His death is sufficient to pay for the penalty of sins once and for all. It includes all sins, past, present, and future. And he died as the only righteous person denoted by the singular noun for the plural unrighteous. Now, you cannot pick that up from the English translation, but it's there in the Greek. In other words, Jesus suffered as the only substitute for sinners. He took on God's rightful wrath on our behalf. And the result of his righteous suffering did more than just paying for our sins. It also brought us to God. It's the language of reconciliation. We who are sinners cannot be in the right relationship with God. He's holy and we are sinful. But through Christ's suffering, his death and his resurrection, the barrier of sin is removed. We are brought back to God. Jesus' death and resurrection is described at the end of verse 18 as being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now, dying in the flesh is perhaps the easiest part to understand, right? It means that Jesus died in his earthly body. But what does being made alive in the spirit mean? Well, it certainly does not mean that Jesus is resurrected in some kind of literal, you know, non-material or non-physical state. For Jesus appeared physically before his disciples after he resurrected. However, that new body is different because Jesus, ate, you know, he can walk through walls, he can walk through doors. Yet it is still physical because he ate and drank and drank with his disciples. The food and the drink didn't just fall straight through, right? 
like Casper in the cartoon or something like that. It doesn't. And his disciples touched him and felt his scars. So what does being made alive in the Spirit mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 to 53 will help us to understand. And we see that on the slide. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. The perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that our natural human body is perishable. In contrast, the resurrected or the raised body is spiritual. It is spiritual in the sense that it is transformed to be glorious and imperishable. It is no longer weak because it is raised in power. The new body belongs to a different domain or realm. It is no longer in the weak and perishable domain of the flesh, but in the glorious and imperishable domain of the spirit. But the, mind, more, the more mind-boggling part comes in verses 19 and 20. I'm sure the DGs had a good time discussing this. Now, I'm not going to have an extensive discussion on every view out there, and if I came to read up on it, there are plenty of resources on the web and in commentaries. But I'm going to present to you the main interpretive issues of these two verses and a brief introduction of the different views. So firstly, the issues. I adapted them from Wayne Goodham's Tyndale New Testament commentary on 1 Peter. Who are the spirits in prison? What did Christ preach to them? When did he preach? And where did he preach? See, based on these issues and questions, scholars have come out with different views. And the following views are adapted from commentaries and articles by Grudem, Carson, Striner, Jobs, and Payne. We see that on the next slide. View 1. When Noah was building the ark, Christ in spirit was in Noah preaching repentance and righteousness through him to unbelievers who were on the earth then while Noah was building the ark, but are now spirits in prison. Second view, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, offering them a second chance of repentance and salvation. View three, after Christ died, he traveled to hell and proclaimed triumph and judgment over the fallen evil 
angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. And view four, after Christ died, he proclaimed to the Old Testament saints who died and now in show, okay, they are present, that God's salvation is finally achieved by Christ dying for their sins to win their release and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now we can strike out view two fairly quickly because it does not fit the context. See, Peter is encouraging his readers to endure suffering. Now how would a possibility of a second chance after death encourage them to do so? It would discourage them instead, isn't it? So we can strike that out. Then I would say that view one, three and four are credible options. However, I find that view 3 is very dependent on the assumed knowledge of the extra-biblical book of 1 Enoch for the first readers of the letter. I can't go into details here. right? But, and both view 3 and 4 have difficulty explaining why the fallen spirits or saints during Noah's time were mentioned in particular. Why are they being raised here? When all the saints and all the spirits were included. They all have difficulties explaining that. As such, I will go with view one at the moment. It is the view that when Noah was building the ark, Christ in spirit was in Noah preaching repentance and righteousness through him to unbelievers who were on the earth then while Noah was building the ark. But because of their disobedience, they are now, they died and are now spirits imprisoned. See, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter also called Noah a herald of righteousness. See, the word herald in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and the word proclaim in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, are the same root word in Greek. Furthermore, the main theme of righteousness is repeated in both. Hence, Noah must have proclaimed righteousness and repentance during the long time he took to build the ark. However, the people were disobedient to the message and were condemned to death by the flood. Their spirits now are residing in shore or hell, awaiting the final judgment. But then we ask, how does view one help to understand how Christ in the domain of the spirit proclaimed through Noah. Now, the connecting words between verse 18 and verse 19 is better is to be better translated as in whom rather than in which. You can actually see that option in the footnote of the ESV Bible. Now, this does not mean that Christ preached after his death. Rather, Peter is saying that the pre-incarnate Christ has preached through Noah in the domain of the Spirit. Now, this, is, this idea of preaching in the domain of spirits is not new in 1 Peter. In chapter 1, verse 10 to 12, it says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating what he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Next slide. 
Is there a next slide? Yep. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, in these verses, the gospel and the word of God are revealed and proclaimed in the domain of the spirits through the human prophets. So it is not unusual that the pre-incarnate Christ can preach righteousness through Noah. But we may ask, right, what is the purpose of Peter writing about Noah here? Well, I think the main purpose is because the, no the account of Noah is an excellent parallel to the situation that the readers of 1 Peter were facing. See, Noah was faithful, he was righteous, even though the rest of the world was evil. He continued to trust in God and obeyed even though it was hard to see what's coming. God showed his patience by not exacting judgment immediately and giving an opportunity for witnessing by Noah. But God proved to be faithful in the end. He judged the evil ones by the flood. However, it is through the same waters which Noah and his family would be saved. They were vindicated in the end and they were the minority, eight of them only. So Peter raised the example of Noah to encourage the, the believers to do likewise in a world that is evil in general. If they endure suffering for doing what is right, just like Noah, they will be saved and vindicated in the end. However, they will, not, they will not be saved through water like Noah. In a parallel statement in verse 21, they will be saved through the resurrection of Jesus. See, when they believe in Jesus, which is synonymous to baptism in the early church, the death and resurrection of Jesus would have cleansed them of their sins. And that's not the end of the result of Christ's righteous work. Verse 22 tells us that he has ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of God. All angels, authorities and powers are now subjected to him. Even though Jesus suffered for doing what is right, the result of his suffering brings salvation and vindication. Now, we won't be like Christ in bringing salvation through our suffering. However, Christians can endure and witness in the midst of suffering till God's purposes are fulfilled, as we saw in Christ and Noah. Now, what might that mean for us? Well, firstly, is to understand that suffering is not necessarily a sign of curse. Suffering can sometimes perhaps be a sign and a means of God's blessings. It is not that those sufferings are welcomed or pleasant, humanly speaking. Yet it means that those who suffer for doing what is right are still considered blessed. They will receive the final reward if they persevere in doing good and right for enduring the suffering that come with doing so. Suffering and blessings are not mutually exclusive and they are not each other's opposite. 
But when suffering do come as a result of doing what is right, how should we respond? I would say, do not waste your suffering. See, such suffering allows us to sort out what our hope is. Is our hope in this world or is our hope in the coming new heavens and new earth? Is our hope in the perishable or is our hope in the imperishable? If our hope is in this present perishable world, the tendency is to retaliate and repay evil with evil because we do not believe in the future judgment of God. And we think that all our rewards are found only in this present world. So we will get back at the ones who hurt us and want to get back what we, we rightly deserve in this world. Now that's not to say that Christians must always suffer in silence. It is right to seek help and report to whatever authorities God has placed over us. We can pursue any legitimate channels to stop abuse and seek justice, especially when it is for others. This is the job, this is the role given by God for civil rulers and authorities. However, our actions must not be motivated by vengeance. And we surely cannot repay evil with evil. Because if we do that, we will have no answer, no defense, and no witness. For our hope is no longer in Christ and the future, but our hope is in this world. We will no longer be sojourners and exiles, but full-pledged citizens of this world. So do not waste your suffering. Sort out your hope. And secondly, do not waste your suffering. Always be ready to give an answer to that hope. See, once you have sorted out your hope in Christ, we must always be ready to witness about that hope. Now, before working in church, uh, I was working in a particular company. I happened to walk into the HR department at one point, and it was during the annual appraisal and wage increment exercise period. And then for no rhyme or reason, a very high-ranking HR personnel just said loudly that I do not work for money. Roger does not work for money. I was a little bit dumbfounded at that moment. And I think every staff was, was probably so. Now, where, where did it come from? Why did he say that? Now, I was rather known that as, as a Christian in the company, and I actually took a year of no pay leave to do some Christian work overseas. And perhaps that was the reason for the comment. But why do that during the annual appraisal and wage increment exercise periods? And in the presence of the whole HR department, I still do not understand. Now, is that considered righteous suffering? Suffering for Christ's sake? Not really. That's very mild. But what I failed to do was to give a good response. I was just dumbfounded. I should have used that command or that moment to give an answer for the hope I have in Christ. But I didn't. You see, Christians don't need a degree or a cause of apologetics to give a defense or answer to the hope we have in Christ. See, we just need to say why we act differently or have different values because of our, res 
of the resurrection of Jesus and the promised inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. And to tell people that our trust and hope are not in the present world. But we must be ready because such opportunities can happen anytime. And most of the time, it will be informal or even unexpected in unexpected circumstances. So we must grasp and be able to articulate the basic truths of our faith and hope. If we are going to leave the office on time to go for our DGs or to go for service and children's church and basic, when everyone else is doing some kind of OT, hanging out with their friends or mugging for the exams, be ready to say why you do otherwise. So do not waste your suffering. And may our witness glorify God and bring some to salvation. Let us pray. Our dearly Father, we we know that you know our struggles and our weaknesses. None of us welcome suffering. Yet we know that suffering may come if we choose to do what is right. Strengthen us by your grace to endure such suffering. May we put our hope in Christ and not in this world so that we can persevere through such sufferings. And if we are to suffer for doing right, may you help us to be ready and bold to give an answer for the hope we have. We pray that your name will be glorified through us as your witnesses and instruments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.